Council of John. So either one. Those of you auditing uh, and the permit diaconate program, I'll give you, uh, you have to write a homily. I will give you the feast or the Sunday, whatever it is, in a week or so. And I'll try to do something that, I'll give you a choice, maybe it's something that you can emphasize, Paul or John. Okay. Uh, for the rest of you, for the term paper, uh, the instructions are on there. I want you to pick out a topic, and again, you can do your topic either on the Pauline literature or on the Gospel of John. You have a choice. Uh, just pick out a topic, pick out something that, uh, as I often say, interests you, something you'd like to learn more about, you never had the time to look into it. Maybe do that to kill two birds of one stone, doing the requirement as well as uh, finding, finally finding out something about a passage that you uh, always intrigued by or didn't understand before. Uh, email me, let me know what your thinking is <coughs> on the topic, and I'll email you back whether or not it's approved. Uh, most of the time, I'm not going to say no. Most of the time, the comments will be, it's too big a passage for a 10-page paper. So I'll, I'll give you some suggestions on how you might want to break it up if you still want to uh, stick to that topic, but most of the time, uh, and again, a passage is not going to be on one verse. You know, you're talking about maybe six to eight verses, whatever, in a, in a passage. If you pick out one or two verses, I'll say, well, you know, the context is it's in this larger section, larger passage. Okay. Uh, I think the instructions on the uh, term paper are self-explanatory. Uh, you do the introduction would be to put the passage in context. In other words, uh, where does it come from? For instance, if you were doing um, the uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, for instance, if you were doing uh, one of the antithesis in Matthew chapter five, okay, that's in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, when Jesus is teaching, uh, you know, like the Moses of old. So the first thing is to let me know, okay, this passage doesn't drop out of nowhere. Uh, what leads up to it, or does the passage lead into something else that comes after it? So you put it in context. The second is the most important part, the, the contents, the message, the body of the paper. And uh, uh, you just don't lift passages from books that you're using. I want to see how you can digest the material, put it in your own words. And, uh, you know, make sure you use not online sources, but use actual books. Uh, your commentaries, for instance, if you look at Brown or Schnockenberg or any of those or Fitzmaier, uh, you'll find maybe 8, 10, 12 pages on your passage. Other sources you look at may have maybe a paragraph. But what I do before I read your paper is look at your bibliography, because that's going to tell me the quality of your paper. If you went to sources that you know, give you scant information or background to it, you're not going to have much material to present in your paper. So uh, you know, make sure that you look. Most of the books that you have, you only have to look at that particular passage in those resource books. You don't have to read the whole book. Just look for this area there that contains your passage and uh, 
you know, uh, if you wanted a Xerox tag, take it with you. Uh, you don't need the whole book. Uh, I have uh, a date by which I want you to submit your topic and a date uh, you're to uh, hand in your paper. Okay, if you need any time extension, if you have any questions, email me. I'll try to get back to you as quickly as possible. Uh, most of the time, if you email me, I will not be around like on weekends because I held out in the parish in Connecticut. Fairfield County. So uh, I don't uh, usually, I'm pretty busy with confessions, mass, communion, etc., to uh, check my iPad. So um, I usually wait till I come home Sunday afternoon and I check in, okay? So if you email me like on a Friday night or a Saturday, uh, I would say don't expect an answer back until Sunday night, okay? If you email me during the week, I will try to get it back to you, you know, within a few hours. Anybody, any questions, both on Zoom and here in person? Okay, so hold on for a fast ride. <laughs> Paul in four to six classes. And by the way, uh, the midterm will be 50%. That will be on Paul. The final exam, which will be on John, is 50%. And your paper is 50%. Excuse me. Now, your, your midterm exam is 25 and 25. Your paper is 50. Okay. Before, I used to do 20 for your midterm exam because there's a lot of it was introductory material. Since we're doing two separate uh, courses, in a sense, uh, it'll be 25% midterm exam on Paul, 25% final exam on John, 50% for your paper. So a lot of your fate is in your hands. If you don't understand something, put up your hand. If you're on Zoom, sometimes I'm not able to pick up your hand, so just call out, okay? Identify yourself, and then I'll, I'll try to zone in on you and answer your question, okay? So I find that students on Zoom tend not to ask too many questions, uh, as opposed to those in person. So again, don't hesitate. Ready? Father, I have a question. Um, what dates are going to be, will, will the midterm be and the final exam? Do we have I, I have to, I have to look at that. Uh, okay. What I'm going to do, what you can do is uh, look at the calendar. Uh, I, I think I have 13 meetings with you, 13 or 14, whatever it is. But I will have six classes on Paul, so you can okay. figure out. Sometime, maybe the beginning of March. But I'll, I'll let you next week. I'll try to check. The Thursday night course that I have tomorrow is uh, savaged. There's no class tomorrow night because they're at the March for Life. I have class next week. The week after, there's no class because of John Meyer's lecture. And we have classes until uh, March. We have uh, St. Patrick's Day is on a Thursday. And you have your spring break, we lose that Thursday. Holy Thursday is a Thursday. So, I mean, uh, this should demand a refund, I think. <laughs> but uh, that's on the Passion Resurrection narratives. That, that's going to be a juggling act to try to figure out what to give a midterm for that. Um, because I think on the calendar, it's only have about four classes before a midterm. Anyway, but I'll, I'll check on that, Lisa, for you, okay? If I remember, I'll, I'll email you too. Okay. Thank you.
You're welcome. Okay. Now, uh, I'm going to try to do as much of the first two sections here on the introduction of uh, the uh, Pauline corpus and also autobiographical material about Paul. Uh, I always find out that uh, when you understand uh, the purpose of the material and also the individual writing it, uh, you don't have to stop and explain it when you actually deal with the letters themselves. And by the way, the, the books, uh, you've had this earlier, I'm sure, Ray Brown for the synoptics. Uh, it's very good. He has a chapter on each of the letters of Paul plus introductory material. So read the introductory material. And the first letters we'll do will be first and second Thessalonians. So if you have a chance, start to read first Thessalonians. The other book is this paperback book, Apostle Paul on the Pauline Tradition. It's one I've used in college courses uh, and it's pretty good. Again, it deals you know, with each of the, uh, the letters. So those are the books. Uh, I handed in to Connor Flats the uh, bibliography, so he should have available the books within a day or two. Okay. If you're honest, for all the other readings that you have listed for each week, are they going to be sent to us? Because I remember the last class you used to give us copies, but for us on Zoom, we don't have access to Connor. Yeah. I won't be I won't be giving you any because. Uh, Again, because there's so little time for each one, uh, I'll rely on the material in brown. Uh, okay, so we don't have to worry about the other. We have to worry about it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. It's the other course that I have things that I have to send to them because uh, there'll be so much that I'm going to rely on them doing on their own. Okay. All right. Now we're going to take a look first at the epistles as a literary form or another word is genre, genre. And half of the 27 books in the New Testament have Paul's name attached to them. And all of them are in letter form. Half of the 27 books okay, have Paul's letters atta name attached to them, and uh, all of them in letter form. Seven of them are what we call undisputed Pauline epistles. Seven are undisputed. What are they? Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, first Thessalonians, and the letter to Philemon. I'll explain why they're undisputed in a minute. Okay, so those nobody questions the authorship of those. Then there are three letters that are called Deutero Pauline, D E U T E R O, Deutero Pauline. And those three are Ephesians, Second Thessalonians, and Colossians. Ephesians, Second Thessalonians, and Colossians. Now, we say these are written by a later author who is heavily influenced by Paul's teachings. You don't think Paul himself wrote them, but it was written by a later author who was heavily influenced, heavily influenced by Paul's teachings. 
And then the final three were called pastoral epistles. As the name signifies, they're written to pastors or shepherds. Those are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. These were leaders of churches, bishops in a sense, you might say. These were written, these three letters were written by a later member of Paul's churches who wanted to appeal to Paul's authority dealing with the situation that arose after his death. So the, this is some situation, problem, whatever it was, that propped up, cropped up after Paul had died, but it's a member of, you know, one of Paul's churches, wanted to address the situation using Paul as his authority. Saying this is what Paul would want. You know, based on what he taught, this is how we should approach this situation. This is how we should deal with it. So you have the undisputed letters, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, Philemon. You have three that are Deuteropauline, Ephesians, 2nd Thessalonians, and Colossians, written by a later author who was heavily influenced by Paul's teaching. So, you know, the, the thought would be very similar to what Paul had been writing. And the final three are pastoral epistles written to leaders of local churches, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and again, written by a later member of Paul's churches. Okay, they wanted to deal with a situation that occurred after Paul had passed from the scene, but uh, using Paul's authority to stress how this situation should be dealt with. Okay. Now, a lot of these things, if you read Brown or uh, Finland, you'll, you'll find uh, you know, uh, a refresher reminder of these things. Okay. Now, the undisputed letters, what do we say they're undisputed? Well, they're similar in terms of their writing style, vocabulary, and their theology. So all those seven, and the writing style is very similar, vocabulary that the author uses is uh, very similar, as well as the theology. And on top of that, the issues that these letters address were issues that we say probably occurred in the early days of the, the uh, Christian movement back to the 40s and 50s. These would be issues not occurring like at the end of the first century or into the beginning of the second century. These would be issues that uh, the early church would be grappling with. Now, the reason that we differentiate the undisputed letters from the Deuteropauline and the pastoral letters is that uh, if those pastorals and Deuteropauline letters come from authors who lived after Paul, rather than coming from Paul himself, then those letters would help us understand how Pauline Christianity developed in later years. But they wouldn't be certain or reliable guides as to what Paul himself taught. Only undisputed letters who say, okay, now we know for sure. The other ones, these are later writers, they're giving us an insight into how Paul's teaching and influence affected the church as it went on. 
those seven undisputed Pauline letters were probably the first New Testament books to be composed. Remember, the Gospels don't come until 66, 68, the Gospel of Mark, and later on. Most of Paul's letters, at least we think they begin around the year 48, 49. This is before any Gospels are written. So the seven undisputed Pauline letters are the first New Testament books to be composed. Gospels will come later. And how is that the case? Well, we know that they didn't get around to writing Gospels in the synoptic course. Why? Because they thought the Lord was going to come back soon. So why waste time? Get out there and preach, tell the people the message, etc. You're not going to waste time writing a book. And by the way, most of the people were illiterate. You wouldn't be able to read what you wrote. So they depended on word of mouth, on hearing. Okay, so uh, you're dealing with, in these letters, what we call immediate literature. It dealt with existing problems right then and there. So as problems or issues developed, letters are written to address those problems long before they got to writing Gospels. Okay. Don't put this off. Okay. You, you kind of put this to rest. And yet, letters continue to be written even after like the Gospels came about and the Acts of the Apostles. The letters didn't end when the Gospels appeared on the scene. Because you have those later letters, the Deuteropauline letters, and you have the pastoral letters. They were written uh, you know, alongside the time when the Gospels were being written. Now, when you check the table of contents in a Bible, you find that 21 of the 27 New Testament books are listed as letters or epistles. And that's kind of a surprising statistic when you realize that none of the 46 Old Testament books carry that designation. There is no letter in the Old Testament. Only the New Testament has letters. And out of the 27 New Testament books, 21 of them are letters. Now, uh, how do the, the letters of Paul, how are they arranged in our canonical New Testament? Well, in the canonical order currently accepted in the Bibles, all the New Testament letters, which by name or history are associated with apostles, come after the Acts of the Apostles. So you have the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and then you have the letters that are associated with an Apostle. Paul, and then you have uh, the other letters. The 13 letters that bear Paul's name come first. And even those 13 letters, there's a, a distinction between them. Uh, the 13 letters of Eric Paul's name come first. They're divided into two smaller collections, nine of which are addressed to communities at geographical places. Rome, Colossae, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatians, Philippi, Thessalonica. Those come first, ones that are addressed to geographical communities. Then after them come the four that are addressed to individuals. First and second Timothy, Titus, 
and Philemon. So if you want to figure out how they appear in the Bible, okay, after the Acts of the Apostles come the letters, all the letters written by Paul. First, the Pauline letters are the ones written to communities in geographic area, and then the later Pauline letters are those written to individuals. Now, each collection is arranged in the descending order of length. So when you take all those written to a geographical community, one that's the longest is the first. The shortest letter is the last of them. Then you get to the pastoral epistles, the same thing. And after those letters comes the letter to the Hebrews. That was long associated with Paul. Now, most people don't think he is the author, but for a long time, Paul was considered to be the author of that. And then after those letters come the other letters, the ones written to James, a letter written by James, rather, by Peter, three letters by John, a letter to Jude. So these are not Pauline letters. So they're the pull up the rear, in a sense. So when you look at the Bible, if the Acts of the Apostles comes, all of Paul's letters are the ones associated with him. And first, the letters of Paul to a geographic area, and then those written to individuals. And even among that, it comes in descending order, which is the, the longest letter is the first one. The shortest letter is the last one. And you can see uh, in letters written to individuals by Philemon is last. It's only 20, 27 verses or something like that. Okay. So if you often want to figure out how come, how did they get arranged this way? That's how it came about. Now that canonical order in which they're arranged doesn't reflect the actual order in which the letters were originally written. It doesn't tell you really in chronological order. Because of its apocalyptic eschatology, most scholars agree that 1 Thessalonians is the earliest of Paul's letters, and that Romans is the latest. Okay, in addition, 1 Thessalonians and the letters to Corinth could be the earliest, because with the exception of the letter to Philemon, they're the least theological. You don't get a any kind of developed theological uh, views in Paul in those letters. So 1 Thessalonians, letters to Corinth, are considered among the earliest, because they're the least theological. Now, we can figure out uh, the chronology of some of them. Why? Well, the controversy regarding the requirements for Gentile converts at Galatia. Okay. In Galatia, there's a big argument. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow kosher laws, etc.? Okay. Forced Paul, both as a Jew and a convert to Christ, for the first time to think about his own positions on these requirements. So Paul's answer to that question, do they or do they not have to be circumcised, etc.? The letter to the Romans states his position on that issue. So we know 
Romans had to come after Galatians because Romans is answering the issue that cropped up in the letter to Galatians. So without Galatians, we may not ever have the letter to the Romans because the issue that cropped up there forced uh, or encouraged Paul to write that letter to the Romans. So therefore, Galatians and Romans are believed to come later because they're answering that. As a side note, some scholars argue that the prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, so-called because Paul wrote them in prison, originated someplace other than Rome, which would most scholars think they were. Now, if Rome is accepted as the place of Paul's imprisonment, as uh, most scholars think, then the prison letters would be the last ones he wrote. He was coming to the end of his life. And if some people think Ephesus was a place that Paul wrote these letters while imprisoned, then Philippians and maybe Philemon would have been written closer to the end. Yeah, there's nothing earth-shaking there. Also, you hear a term uh, sometimes uh, talk about the great letters. These are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. And they use that term great letters uh, because of their length and their importance for Christian teaching. There's a lot of uh, theological material in those letters. They call the great letters. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Galatians. When I was studying in graduate school, one course on 1st Corinthians, I had a whole course on Romans, of course on Thessalonians, etc. But they usually would, you know, you'd have to tackle some of the great letters. Okay, now, uh, the word for all practical purposes for us, the terms letter and epistles are interchangeable. You know, for a long time, we used to say reading from the epistle of Paul. Now we have the letter of Paul, etc. So we use those two terms interchangeably. But there was one scholar, Deisman, D-E-I-S-S-M-A-N-N. -S -S -M -M. He wrote a book called Life from the Ancient East. He made a distinction between these terms. For him, the word epistle, or that category, was an artistic literary exercise in which the writer presented a moral lesson to a general audience. And he intended it to be published publicized, anyway. And uh, Dyson gives an example the Roman author Seneca. He wrote a book called Epistolae Morales, Moral Letters or Epistles, Moral Epistles. Okay, what is he talking about? Like, he's dealing with the topic of morality and morals. He's, you know, writing a treatise, I might say. And he wasn't writing to one individual. This is something he expected, you know, a lot of people to uh, tune in on and to uh, to learn about. On the other hand, he says, letter is 
a non-literary means of communicating information between a writer and the correspondent. Separated by distance, so you're writing to connect, you know, the uh, author and the recipient. We're not presenting a big moral lesson, anything like that. Now, using that criteria, separating epistle as being sitting down writing a treatise on a topic, and you want a lot of people to to benefit from it, as opposed to a letter which is a more you know informal kind of communication. You're trying to keep in touch with somebody. Okay, almost all of most of the 13 New Testament compositions associated with Paul, along with First and Second Peter, excuse me, Second and Third Peter, would be classified as letters. Also, be classified as letters. On the other hand, Hebrews and perhaps First and Second Peter, James, First John, and Jude would be called epistles. Read a letter to the Hebrews. Okay, you can see that's not it's not writing you know, to an individual to, to uh, resume contact with them. He's talking about the priesthood of Jesus and how it's superior to the Jewish priesthood, etc. Jewish priests offer sacrifice that to be repeated, whereas Jesus has once um, once and for all sacrificed. So he's writing about you know a, a theological issue. And he expects it not to be, you know, uh, read by one person, but he expects a whole community to, uh, to tune into that. Okay, so, but for our purposes, most of the time we just, you know, use those two terms interchangeably. And now, as far as letters go, they can be written in many different ways. Sometimes they're written by the sender's own hand is a lost art these days. How many people sit down and write letters, even thank you notes? Now you zip on, you send an email, shoot an email to people, but uh, sit down and write a letter, okay? So some of them are written by the Senate in the Senate's own hand. Sometimes they're dictated to a secretary. Working in an office, okay? The boss isn't sitting down writing letters, responding to correspondence. He walks out to the secretary's desk or calls her in and he says, okay, you know, take this down or answer this. Tell them, blah, blah, blah. Now, if the sender only indicated the broad outlines of the message, you know, so for instance, you tell the secretary, tell them, you know, I have this thing that night, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that uh, maybe I'll make it another night or whatever it is. Okay. If you're giving them the secretary or the scribe broad authority to formulate in their own words, what was given to them, and to create, you know, the final form of the letter. That's one way. The other is, again, to write it yourself. You have total control of what's being said. You own it completely. Now, as far as Paul goes, he may have written that short letter like the one to Philemon written it himself, the whole letter himself. But sometimes when you read his letters, okay, uh, Paul makes references to lines written in his own hand in longer letters. So for instance, 
1 Corinthians 16.21. You're wondering whether Paul is writing all these things. 1 Corinthians 16.21. This is what he says. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for God, let him be accursed. Now, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He's he's writing, okay, for the blind to see, okay. See with what large letters I'm writing you with my own hand. And then in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 7. Second Thessalonians, we will say, 3.17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the mark in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Right now, when he says that, that, that might suggest that the rest of the letter was written by another, author, another writer. And also, he has... In Romans chapter 16, verse 22, he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius is host to me and to the whole church greets you. Rasmus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So, letters from Romans says, I church use the writer of this letter, means that Paul isn't sitting down writing it all himself. Tertius is writing this letter at the behest of Paul, probably telling him what I want you to say. Now, Tertius isn't saying, okay, dictate it to me. Paul is just talking, says this is what you want. So, it's up to Tertius to write it to put the body of flesh and blood on it. Then, of course, uh, the presumption is that Paul, you know, has looked this over and it's okay with him. He may not have used the exact words that Tertius used, but, okay, he's conveying the idea at once. Also, we have in 1 Peter, chapter 5, 12, Peter writing through Silvanus. So Silvanus is writing for Peter. And we don't know how literally Paul would have supplied wording to the scribes. Whether he was working with secretaries or co-workers, he may have dictated some letters exactly and allowed freedom to others. Said, you know, you know what I want to say. You have the idea of what I want you to write. Okay, so, for instance, Colossians has a style very different from the undisputed letters. Colossians, who's come later, okay, uh, would not be one that would be uh, dictated or uh, 
presumably uh, hovered over by Paul. Okay, in the New Testament letters, particularly the Pauline letters, they were all meant to be read aloud in order to persuade people. Paul is writing a letter to deal with an issue, etc., and he wants people to hear you know, what he thinks about this. Like speeches, these letters can be judged as rhetoric. In terms of the authority of the writer, in terms of the way the material has been chosen and structured. And also in the way in which it has been expressed, a vocabulary organization, so that it can be easily understood and remembered. Now, the Greek philosopher Aristotle wrote a book called Ars Rhetorica, The Art of Rhetoric. And in that book, he distinguished three modes or types of argumentation rhetoric when you get up to speak in public okay you distinguish three different approaches to styles when you get up to speak the first one he called judicial or forensic argumentation now that would be the kind of speech or argumentation you use in a court of law you know like the final summation etc or when you're trying to present evidence words you're, you're making a point most likely defend your position at times Paul is conscious of charges made against him by those who opposed his policy on circumcision and the Mosaic law so when he's when people are critical of him you know doing away with the Mosaic law he defends himself using this judicial or forensic appeal so it's like he's in a court of law defending his reputation and his authority as a teacher. And he defends his ministry, what he's done in the past. So when he's defending himself and his positions, okay, he's adopting a style of rhetoric called a judicial or forensic. Then you have a second kind, kind called deliberative or hortatory encouragement argumentation. That would be found in public or political assemblies debating what's expedient for the future he tries to persuade people to make practical decisions and to do things so for instance if you want a contemporary thing like uh, the uh, the voting rights act okay you up there and you're, you're pitching you're, you're trying to get people to uh, persuade them to make a decision to do something Paul insists that if his letter to the Corinthians is not received, he's going to come and argue it in person. So he's trying to appeal to them to think about something, make a decision, and to change. Okay, and he says, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to come and do this in person instead of just through this letter. The final type of uh, rhetoric or argumentation is called demonstrative argumentation. This would be found in speeches given in a public celebration. It's designed to please or inspire people. 
affirming their common beliefs and values, gaining support in President Devers. That's what you would feel figure in a political speech and a campaign speech to get elected, right? Encouraging people to say, you know, I'm going to do this for you, and isn't this good, and et cetera, should you back all of this? <clears throat> so the way you speak, et cetera, has a different approach than if you're defending your reputation or uh, your policies. Paul often writes to encourage his converts. He praises their faith and observance. So if you were looking at Galatians, you would find judicial rhetoric. As he's talking about circumcision, mosaic law, etc. First uh, Corinthians would be deliberative rhetoric. Muslims come to a decision to do something. And uh, Romans would be demonstrative rhetoric. Trying to inspire people, encourage them. Now, we're not saying that Paul is aware of using these types of things, but uh, and we'll, we'll deal about it when we get into his personal biography, but uh, he certainly was an educated person. And one of the main courses or subjects he would learn field of education was rhetoric, public speaking. So he would have been trained in this. Now, when he wrote these letters, he's not thinking about his rhetoric classes, but you know, he absorbed them such that it just was easy to use this type of argumentation. And in this case, and this letter is a different one than another, depending on the situation. So he draw on his background to do so. Um, basically, he's responding what needs to be done. All right, in the Greco-Roman world, there were several kinds of letters, including private personal letters and formal letters intended for the public. Now, the letters intended for the public were aimed at arousing publicity and evoking a formal response to the writer's views. Paul's letters are informal. They weren't intended to be made public or to gain publicity. They're rather free, spontaneous, conversational writings intended only for the people to whom they were addressed. Now, you know in every literary genre, there is certain formats that you follow, right? We talk about fairy tales, once upon a time, and with happily ever after. Uh, so every literary genre has a certain structure or format, et cetera, that, that follows, as you can tell. Well, the same is true of Paul's letters. Now, letters at the time he wrote, in the Hellenistic age, tended to follow a set format. You don't understand that format, you're going to uh, seriously misinterpret the letter. So, for example, in a modern English letter, we might draw the wrong inference about the relationship between a writer and the recipient if we attributed to the word dear in the letter's opening its normal meaning. I didn't realize it was a stereotyped uh, part of a letter. So, you can say, dear, come here. 
you're talking about somebody who's close to you, etc. When you're writing, dear Mr. So-and-so, so-and-so, you're not talking about somebody who you're intimate. It's a very formal thing. So you have to realize, you know, uh, the format of, of a formal letter, that that word dear doesn't convey any intimacy with that person. And it's part of the, the formalized uh, structure of that uh, genre of writing. Okay, in the standard format that you can see in most New Testament letters, there are generally four detectable parts. Letter follows the format, has four parts to it. And very easy. I'll give you the four parts and then we'll, we'll pull them apart. The first is, is an opening formula. The second feature of the letter would be words of thanksgiving. Third feature would be the body or message of the letter, the heart and soul of the letter there. And the last part would be concluding formula. So letters would normally follow that progression. Okay. Now, in the opening formula, there are elements in that. Consisted of three basic elements, the opening formula. It identified the center of the letter. It identified the addressee, the person to whom it was written. And there was some greeting. So what? Greeting. A greeting. Greeting. So you have identifies who writing, who's writing, to whom he's writing to, and some greeting. Okay, sometimes, you know, they extend the greeting, you know, remembering the addressee or wishing him good health and reporting on the writer's own good health. But that's history. Okay, now, first one, the sender. This includes the author's name, which is sometimes identified with a title to establish the author's authority. So, for instance, you know, today, uh, you know, you would say, uh, for instance, uh, if I were writing a letter of recommendation to somebody, uh, you know, I would identify who I am who's writing this letter. Okay, I wouldn't be, I would just wouldn't be saying Father Tim Scannell, but I would say uh, I'm writing this letter as not only someone who knows the individual I'm vouching for, but also I'm a professor in a university. So when that university gets this letter of recommendation, they say, oh, this isn't just some priest that happens to know the family. This is a priest who, you know, has academic, you know, credentials. So he's writing about this person and hopefully he's being honest about their academic abilities. So we have the same thing here in these letters here. Uh, in, uh, so in addition to uh, identifying the person's name, they also attribute some title to that person to establish their authority. Although in First and Second Thessalonians, we find simply Paul, 
Nine times he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, or an apostle through Christ Jesus. Twice he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. In letter to Titus, he refers to himself as a servant of God. So I'm not just Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm a servant of God. Okay, so this is adding greater weight to what I'm going to say in this letter. Eight of the 13 Pauline letters name co-senders, various combinations, okay? Uh, and six times he talks about himself and Timothy sending this letter. Silvanus is mentioned twice as a co-author of the letter. And an individual named Sosthenes, S-O-S-T-H-E-N-E-S, Sosthenes, once, Okay, so in one way or another, these co-senders have contributed to the composition of these writings. Okay, so that's the first thing, identify who is sending. The second step is, who's getting the letter? Who am I writing this to? Okay, the addressee or recipient. Okay, the simplest form is a personal name. I, I'm writing to such and such a person. But in the few New Testament letters written to individuals, Further identification is supplied. So for instance, writing to Polycarp, he says, who is bishop? Or sometimes expresses an affection. Letter to John, to, to the beloved Gaius. We address the in most of the New Testament letters, though, are not individuals, communities in given regions. So in five Pauline letters, first incessant. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, the addressees are identified as the Church of Corinth, Church in Galatia. Okay. Uh, in four of them, Philippians, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, they're called the Saints, the Church of. So, author, sometimes he to add to the authority, apostle, servant of God, etc. To the addressee, sometimes. Uh, an individual's beloved Gaius uh, or Polycarp the bishop. And most of the times he's writing to given regions. The people in the given regions call them the church in or the saints at. Okay. All right, so the third one that we did, sender, the recipient. The final thing is the greeting. Occasionally this is omitted. Some letters skip it. Jewish letters tended to replace greetings with peace, shalom, and to be more expansive in describing the persons involved. So to give you an example, the second book of Baruch, it's not biblical writing, it's a, a writing in the first, second, first century before Christ. Baruch, the son of Neriah, to the brothers carried into captivity, mercy, and peace. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, identifies that to the brothers, and he, and he spells out who they are. They're, carry, they're the ones carried into captivity. To them, mercy and peace. Almost all of Paul's letters employ a combination of two or three nouns like grace, peace, mercy, love, 
all characterized as coming from God the Father and Jesus Christ. And occasionally, sometimes after the greeting or an extended part of the greeting, there's a remembrance or a wish for someone's help. In Greco-Roman personal letters, the sender prayed for the health of the person he was writing to and gave assurance to that person of his own health. So you have Serapi to his brothers Ptolemaeus and Apollonius. Greetings. If you were well, it would be excellent. I myself am well. In First Thessalonians, the remembrance is part of the thanksgiving rather than part of the opening formula. After we give thanks, he continues, remembering before God and our Father your work of faith. The best and clear example of a, an opening health wish is in the third letter of John. Beloved, I hope you are in good health. Okay, so the first part, the structural part of the letter, okay, is the opening, uh, opening formula. formula. So you have three things, addressee, it's not addressee, the sender, the addressee, and then agree. Now you get to the second step, thanksgiving. In Hellenistic letters, the opening formula is often followed by a statement wherein the sender gives thanks to the gods for specified reasons. For instance, delivering them from some calamity. And they offer thanks to gods for sparing them. Second uh, Maccabees, chapter 1, verse 11, supplies a good Jewish example of this thanksgiving. Having been saved by God from grave dangers, we thank God greatly for taking our side against the king. And sometimes there's prayer that such care will be continued. Now, a different pattern appears in Pauline's thanksgiving. The introductory wording is usually, I or we, if it's a co-center, give thanks to God because. And the specified reason for the thanks is not deliverance from some kind of disaster, but the faithfulness of the congregation were being addressed. And the plea for continued fidelity. So the thanksgiving, in a sense, is kind of a compliment, patting them on the back putting them in a benevolent mood to receive a message that may contain a demand or even a warning. You know, it's just like the boss calling you into, not to say, Charlie, you're doing, you did a great job in this thing. And, uh, but, you know, give you a pat on the back and say, you know what? Next time, you know, I would like, I prefer you do this or that or whatever it is. So that's in the Thanksgiving. It's a compliment given. Sometimes it's a, uh, you know, a, a nice, easy lead into, you know, some kind of strict warning or a stern message. Okay, now you have the body now. Come to the third part of the formula: body or the message of the letter. That's sometimes defined as what comes between the opening formula and the concluding formula. In other words, this is the heart and soul. Why am I writing this? What issue am I uh, tackling? You know, what report am I reacting to? What behavior uh, am I not pleased with? Okay, so the, the third part there is the, uh, uh, the body or the message of the letter. 
So for instance, now, when you open that part, you open the body of the letter, I, you know, usually the author explains why he's writing this letter. You know, he's identified who he is, who he's writing to, you know, and then the greeting, Thanksgiving. Okay, now why am I writing this letter to you? And there's a rather narrow range of opening sentences in the body of secular letters. Sometimes it's, I want you to know. Or do you think that? Please do not. Or I regretted or rejoiced when I heard that you, whatever it was. I wrote precisely about you. I appealed to you. Now, equivalent formulas like that are found in the opening of the body of Paul's letters. Generally, they involve an opening expression of joy, chiefly over news of the addressee's welfare. So in Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, there is joy in praying for the Philippians. In 2 Timothy, he says, the sender longs to see the addressee so it may be filled with joy. Philemon, verse 7, joy has already been derived by the sender from the love of the addressee. I'm overjoyed because I, I feel the love that I receive from you. Okay, another feature of the opening of the body part is a petition or request. So when that petition is the background for the petition is given, petition itself is expressed, desired action is described. So background, you know, may say, you know, there's been a, a hurricane or something. That's the background. The petitioner says, you know, I was hoping you could do something, respond to this. And then what action do I want you to do? You can take up a collection. Now, in that body part, how would it close? Well, he would kind of wrap up or recapitulate the reason why he wrote the letter. Okay. It would feature a statement as to why the letter was written, the motivation, what motivated me to, you know, pick up my pen and write to you. Then the second part is indicating how the addressee should respond. What do I expect you to do, given after listening to me and hearing me? Reminds of their responsibilities. And it expresses, you know, I'm relying on you, I'm confident you're going to do the right thing. And then sometimes he ends with, uh, Proposal of further contact, maybe by a visit. Okay, looking forward to the mutual benefit that will result from you know getting together and seeing you again. Uh, okay, just uh, a couple of the ideas that you know just give you an idea of uh, how he wraps up the body part. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, but I wrote to you boldly on some points as a reminder that by the will of God, I may come to you in joy and be refreshed in your company. Confident in your compliance, I wrote to you, knowing that you will do more than I say. He's saying, you know, I know you go above and beyond what I ask. At the same time, prepare for me a guest room, for I hope that through your prayers, I shall give you, be given back to you. Sometimes he promises a visit. I shall visit you after I pass through Macedonia. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. I'm writing this while I'm away from you, so that when I come, I may not have to be severe. End your ways. Heed my appeal. You know, 
the clock is running. I'm going to be coming. So when I get there, you know, your house better be in order. Okay, and the final element there, formula, you have the concluding formula. Now, in Greco-Roman letters, there are two conventional expressions that mark the end of the Roman of a letter, namely a wish for good health and a word of farewell. For example, for the rest, take care of yourself that you remain in good health. Farewell. The pulling letters, though, don't follow the normal custom of this. Paul never concludes the letter with either a wish for health or a word of farewell. He does have greetings coming from the co-workers who were with him and directed to the people whom he knows at the community that's addressed. So for example, he will say in Philippians chapter four, give greetings to every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who are of the household of Caesar. In the letter to Titus, he says, all those with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. And besides the greetings, Paul sometimes concludes with the doxology of God and a, and a blessing for the recipients. So in eight of the Pauline letters, the benediction is a slight variant of this general form. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Our grace be with you. Okay. Where do we find them? The opening of Mass, right? Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, meaning the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you have, uh, you know, the, uh, the the blessing or the asking God's grace. Okay, so these are features found in the concluding formers of other Old Testament letters as well. Uh, a kind of unique feature in four of Paul's letters, as well as in First Peter, the greeting is to be done with a holy kiss. I greet you with a holy kiss, my, my co-workers. Although kisses weren't unusual among family members, people were very reticent about public kissing in Greco-Roman society. And throughout his ministry, Jesus and his disciples are not shown exchanging a kiss. That highlights Judas's use of a kiss in Gethsemane in a context where he didn't wish to alert Jesus, meaning that it was a normal greeting in the group. Apparently the Christian community had adopted the kiss as a sign of fellowship. It was holy because it was exchanged among the saints. Okay, as I mentioned before, Paul takes care to include a line stating he's writing with his own hand. At least for the four longer letters in which he does so, like 1 Corinthians, Galatians, 2 Thessalonians, and Colossians, besides suggesting that the rest of the letter was physically penned by someone else, such lines may imply that Paul has checked the whole letter so that, you know, it'd be cleared. He would send it out under his name. He's not saying, well, just like anything else, you put your name to it, you own it. Whether or not you wrote it, if you signed on it, it's yours. If you didn't read it, that's your fault. 
if you put your authority behind that by signing that and saying, this is coming from me, this is expressing what I want or uh, uh, what I uh, am annoyed at, etc. So uh, when Paul says, I've written this, means, okay, at the very end of the letter, okay, this is my own personal stamp on this. But, you know, doing so, I'm kind of uh, acknowledging or affirming all the letter before this. Okay. Any questions? It's a break right now, but uh, I hope I'm not going too fast. A lot of this, when you read Brown or you read Finland, will recap some of this. Okay, so if you miss the identification of certain letters, that's not important. Just the overall idea that you find in these. Right? Anybody have any questions on that? Okay, so the letter is a literary genre. It's a definite type as a structure that's followed. Just like any literary genre, business letter, a personal letter, uh, all these other things that are fairy tales, whatever else you do, uh, all these have a, a set structure that's followed. Type of way. All right. Uh, let me give you a 10 minute break. 25 after 8. Okay, we're going to pick up uh, on the the occasional nature of Paul's letters, and then we'll get into background of Paul. Okay? No questions? Brilliant class? <laughs> <laughs> the teacher is a little slow one up here, right? Okay, so I'll give you a 10 minute break, uh, 25 after 8. You stretch your legs. I'll hang around for a minute or two if anybody has a question you want to ask. Okay? Just a reminder, uh, those of you who didn't send in your bio sheets, I'd appreciate it. Uh, I have Lucas's, Paul Reisman, Raphael, Daniel, George Kane, Janine, Vincent, Vince. John Williams, and I just got Bob Levy, okay. So it just helps me to uh, make sure I have the right email address for you if I need to get you. Or if you email me, I'll get you through. I sent so, mine in, Father, so I don't know what I did. Okay. I sent mine in also. When did you send it? Probably three days ago. I should have gotten it. Yeah. I'll just resend it again. Okay. I sent mine today. Who is that? Well, I yeah, yeah. I, I called your name, didn't I? Or did no, I? No. no, I don't think I did. Even, yeah. Uh, Chris Greer. I don't think I did. Let's see. He didn't call me. Yeah. Yeah, just if you can email it to me again, I don't see I have it here. Okay, I will. Okay. Paul traveled from city to city, winning converts over to this 
growing new religion and establishing churches, he was often separated from the people he had last met. Because the letter was the only form of long-distance communication, no telegrams, no, you know, email, iPhones, whatever the rest of it is. Uh, letter was the only form of long-distance communication. So he wrote letters to communities he had previously visited. And these letters were delivered by messengers who traveled on land or sea. Either by Pony Express or by, you know, steamboat. Now, we said that Paul's letters are informal, but they weren't written just to extend greetings, to say hi to people, or to reminisce about old times, you know, often think about nights we spent gabbing away, or to renew friendships. They're informal, but they weren't for those particular purposes. They were what we call situational or occasional. By that we mean they address specific situations or occasions or deal with particular problems that have arisen in the communities that he's writing to. So it's not just to check in and say hi or say, I was just thinking about the good times we had or uh, anything like that. No, something has come up, some situation or occasion that's prompting him to put pen to paper and to write to this community. Now, Paul's letters are not essays written on set themes or systematic treatises to discuss important issues of theology. He's not saying I'm going to write about the Incarnation or the Eucharist or etc. That's not the reason he's writing a letter. Okay. These are actual communications to particular individuals and communities. And in every case, Paul's letters were occasioned or prompted by situations he felt compelled to address as an apostle of Christ. I hear about something that's going on, or I hear about your behavior, or you know, I, I find out who's you know uh, annoying you, or you know, giving you the wrong information. Okay. So there's something that happened. And Paul says, you know, I've got to address this. So that's why he's writing. So the recipients of these letters are often experiencing some form of crisis. Either of belief or behavior. In other words, there's something about the Christian faith, okay, that they're not straight about, or somebody's teaching something different from what he taught. Or it might be their behavior. I taught you, to, you know, I expected more of you to behave, you know, according to the teachings of Christ. What I hear indicates that you haven't gotten the, the message. So he's writing this because they are experiencing a form of crisis, either belief or behavior. 
which Paul now attempts to resolve. Now, just to set the record straight, let's end this now. And in every situation, Paul's main concern is always pastoral. He deals with individual problems caused by church members' teaching or conduct. On counseling these small groups of early Christians, Paul typically invokes theological arguments or examples to reinforce his advice. Because Paul's presentation of theological issues is secondary to his counseling or his advice. Because he's dealing basically with issues that came up in communities that he had founded. Since the letters don't provide a complete or systematic statement of Pauline beliefs and views. So, so he's not writing about theological issues and giving you like a, a little catechism lesson on it. No, he's dealing with the crisis of situation. In addressing it, he'll bring in theology or examples. That's not the reason he's writing. <clears throat> beliefs, practices, and perspectives that were not an issue are not addressed. Even when these were of great importance to Paul. So for instance, one perfect example, if Paul hadn't taken exception the way the Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper. We'd never have known that he supported or even knew of the practice. The only time he ever mentions the Eucharist in all the letters is when he's you know, criticizing the Corinthians for their behavior when they get together to celebrate the Eucharist. That's the only time he mentions the Eucharist. If he didn't have that, we wonder, does he know about it? But again, again, Paul's main interest is not in teaching about the Eucharist, etc., but in dealing with a crisis or situation. This one happened to revolve around the Eucharist. That's why he talks about on the night that Christ died, he did this, that, the other thing, okay? So he's not writing uh, to address a theological issue, he's writing to address you know, an occasional situation. A crisis has developed and uh, he tries to set it straight. In the process of addressing it, he brings in you know, some of the theology of the Eucharist. So we need to learn about the occasions that lie behind the letters. What caused Paul? What bugged him? What got him going? He had to sit down and write. Now, each of these letters has a specific historical setting, a real-life context. So if we were to misconstrue or ignore the context, we'd probably change what the letters meant. So that means we have to look for clues as to the historical circumstances that prompted Paul to produce the letters or the circumstances as he appears to have perceived. So we've got to find out, okay, what was going on that got him to do 
to write this letter? What was he hoping to achieve by writing the letter? Okay, now we're going to talk about Paul himself. Paul's letters are mainly concerned with problems that arose in his churches, not with events that transpired in his life. When you read the letters, it's not about me, me, me. He never talks about himself, or very little. He'll bring himself personal experience in to address the situation, but he's never writing about himself, glorifying himself. At times, Paul does find it necessary to mention his past, for instance, when he's trying to establish his credentials as a true apostle of Christ. Now, in any of the places where he refers to himself, such as in the letter to Galatians and in Philippians, Paul lets us know he visualizes his past in three stages. First stage is his life as a Pharisee prior to faith in Christ. So his life as a Pharisee prior to faith in Christ. The second stage is his conversion experience itself. And thirdly, his activities as an apostle afterward. So as a Jewish Pharisee before he came to faith in Christ. The second is the conversion experience himself, itself, and the third is activities as an apostle after that. We have to say we know very little for certain about Paul prior to his conversion. He does tell us that he was a Jew born to Jewish parents. And he was zealous for the law. He adhered strictly to the traditions endorsed by the Pharisees. The Jew born to Jewish parents, he was zealous for the law. Always wanted to adhere strictly to traditions endorsed by the Pharisees. He tells us that in Galatians and Philippians. He doesn't tell us where he, when he was born, where he was raised, or how he was educated. Where do we get all this information about him, oh, if he doesn't tell us? The Acts of the Apostles provides some information along these lines. In the Acts, Paul is said to have been from the Greek city of Tarsus, Acts 21-39, which is a city in the southern eastern part of Asia Minor. And Acts tells us he was educated in Jerusalem under the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel, G-A-M-A-L-I-E-L. -E he was educated in Jerusalem under that renowned rabbi. Now, Raymond Brown, in, in your uh, text, tells us that Paul was probably born around the years between 5 and 10 AD. 
that he was raised and educated in Tarsus. And the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 16 and chapter 22, he identifies himself as a Roman citizen by birth. How do we know that? Remember, he gets arrested and uh, he says, you got to send me to Rome, to the emperor, to hear my case because I'm a Roman citizen. Jews can't uh, determine my fate. So we know that he was a Roman citizen and uh, by birth. Okay, so... Paul doesn't tell us very much about himself. A lot of the information we have comes from Luke writing the Acts of the Apostles. Now, since Paul makes neither claim, some scholars suspect that Luke might be attempting to provide superior credentials for his protagonist. So for instance, Paul doesn't tell us where he was born or where he was educated. Luke in the Acts of the Apostles tells us he was born in Tarsus, he was uh, trained in Jewish law under Gamaliel. Now, some people say, well, you know, is that reliable? Paul doesn't say it about himself. Uh, but maybe the reason why uh, Luke brings up Tarsus and Jerusalem is that uh, he wants to uh, kind of boost Paul's standing credentials. Why? Because Tarsus was the location of a famous Greek school of Greek rhetoric. That was usually a, a place reserved for the social and intellectual elite. It was something like a, an Ivy League university. He grew up and studied in Tarsus. And also, Jerusalem was the center of all Jewish life. Gamaliel was one of the most revered teachers. So some people say, well, Lucas is trying to burnish Paul's credentials. So, you know, he grew up in the right place. He had an Ivy League education. And then in terms of the Jewish law, he goes to Jerusalem East City, and he gets the number one teacher. So uh, we don't know. But Paul's own letters give little indication to the extent of his formal education. His ability to read and write, though, shows that he was better educated than most people of his day. And it's not hard to say because probably 85 to 90 percent of the people in the empire could do neither could neither read or write. In addition, Paul writes on a fairly sophisticated level. It shows that he must have had some formal training in rhetoric. I'm going to tell you how he deals with responses in his letters, three types of rhetoric. Rhetoric was the main focus of higher education at the time. So since Paul certainly has some advanced schooling, it's plausible he did grow up in a place like Tarsus, if not Tarsus itself. Paul's native tongue was unquestionably Greek. It doesn't give us any indication he knows Aramaic, which is the language widely used in Palestine. So that would be a good indication that Luke is right in situating Paul in the Jewish diaspora, a place like Tarsus. So we don't have it from Paul himself, that Tarsus is the site of his education, but, you know, a lot of things hint at that. We have no conclusive evidence, but uh, it wouldn't be a, a wild guess. Now, although Paul gives no hint that he studied in Jerusalem, 
he clearly did study the Jewish scriptures. He studied them extensively, possibly in some type of rabbinic school. Might have been in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. It's not, it's not far-fetched. He's able to quote the scriptures with great knowledge and from memory. And he seems to have meditated and reflected on the meaning of the scriptures at a fairly deep level. Now you notice the scriptures in their Greek translation, which is called the Quickly, you forget. Greek translation in the Hebrew scriptures is called Septuagint. Septuagint, right. Since his letters are all addressed to Greek-speaking Christians, it's hard to say whether he quoted the text in this way to accommodate his readers, quoting the Greek translation in the Hebrew Bible, or whether this was the only form of the biblical text that he knew. So whether Paul's knowledge of the Bible was only the Greek translation, or whether he used the Greek translation because his audience only spoke Greek. No, we're not sure. It's hard to determine whether or not he could also read the scriptures in their original Hebrew. But what is certain is that prior to becoming a believer, Paul was an avid Pharisee. He talks about that in the letter to the Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 5. It says, If any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was very proud of himself as a Pharisee. In fact, Paul's letters are the only writings to survive from the pen of a Pharisee prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The Pharisees, this is a group. He is the only Pharisee writer okay, uh, prior to the destruction of the temple in 70. Paul claims he rigorously followed the traditions of the fathers. Now, again, we're in a synoptic course. Okay. What was the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Sadducees was the ability after life. Right. Or the scriptures go, what what do they do? The scriptures, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books. Right? They only believed so therefore they didn't believe in resurrection or afterlife, angels, etc., because they were not in the first five books. The Pharisees, though, believed in the other books of the Bible and also in the oral teachings of the rabbis. So when you talk about the traditions of the elders, Paul says, okay, he's faithful to those traditions. We know that they were written later in the uh, uh, Gemara, and later became enshrined in the Talmud. So 
what that was is a collection of the interpretations of the commentaries on law. It's just like in our country. You know, we have laws, okay? Now, sometimes you go to court and say, this is what this law means. Some people say, no, this is what this law means. So what do you do? You know, sometimes the Supreme Court decides which interpretation is the correct. So let's say you got uh, a book that contained all of the decisions of the Supreme Court on different issues. This is what the Pharisees did. They took the, the decisions of the rabbi, their interpretations of various passages of scripture. And uh, those are, you know, almost as sacred as the Bible itself. Here's the Bible's word, but what does it mean? Rabbi so-and-so said, here, this is what it means. Sadducees would not do that. Only the first five books themselves. No traditions or commentaries or explanations of the Bible. And Father O'Reilly would say, that's see. why we were sad, you see? All right. <laughs> Very good. His, his, his wig. He said Mass for me every Sunday, so I know that wig. Uh, okay, so the Pharisaic oral laws circulated in Paul's youth uh, nearly two centuries before they were written down in the Mishnah. So what Paul is saying, he's a devout, intelligent Jewish young man, totally committed to understanding and practicing his religion strictly. Now, as a Pharisee, Paul's religion would have centered around the law of God, Torah, Moses, which was the greatest gift of God to Israel. Now, exact and thorough adherence to the law was the ultimate goal of Jewish devotion. Okay, following the law, that was the ideal for a devout Jew. Now, looking back on his early life, Paul would later claim that he had been blameless with respect to the righteousness that the law demands. That's an interesting thing now. Paul would claim that he had been blameless with respect to the righteousness that the law demands. This is that in Philippians 3.6. Now, what does Paul mean by this statement? I mean, did he help kill his cousin Stephen and some other Jews? Yeah. So, how would he consider himself blameless? He was following the law, and therefore he was, uh, it was a hand the law. The law said that's when I killed. So how is he blameless? He violated one of the commandments. Okay, did he mean that he never violated a single commandment of God? No, that's not true. And that seems unlikely, given his insistence elsewhere, that no one has kept the law in all its particulars. He mentions that in the letters of the Romans. We'll deal with that. He says that's a view that's claimed that he claimed is taught by the law itself. Did he mean that he did his best to keep the law so that he couldn't be faulted for not trying? That probably seems more likely. But here's the key thing: he may have also meant that he was blameless 
because the law itself makes provision for those who sin, the sacrifices that it requires. So these sacrifices were explicitly given for those who inadvertently broke the law as a way to restore them to a right standing before God. So what does that mean? And Paul did his utmost to keep the law and perform the required sacrifices for his sins when he failed to keep the law. He may well have considered himself blameless with respect to the righteousness that the law demands, since he had done what it requires. So what he's saying, do you follow me? Saying the law says, this is the way you have to live. The law also says when you sin, you have to make all sacrifices. So the law envisions that you're not going to be it's not going to be kept. And it deals with the aftermath of your failure. So I'm blameless in the sense I did fail, but I followed the law when it said when you fail, you do this. That's probably what he means. So, you know, he tried his best to keep the law. But when he failed, also follow what the law said you have to do when you sin. Over sacrifice in the temple. Now, one of the important features of the Pharisees, which distinguished them from the Sadducees, was their fervent expectation of the future resurrection of the dead. Sadducees didn't believe in that because, again, it's not a concept that was in the first five books of the Bible. In fact, it's something rather late in Jewish history, first century BC. The Christians, excuse me, the Pharisees in the first century, along with other groups, such as the Essenes, were by and large what we call Jewish apocalypticists. They anticipated the intervention of God in the world. some point near the end, God was going to intervene. And he would destroy the forces of evil that opposed him. So at the end of the age, which would be imminent, God would send a deliverer for his people who would set up God's kingdom on earth. So God would intervene by sending a deliverer for his people who set up God's kingdom here on earth. In addition to that, the dead would be raised and all would face a judgment. Now, Paul most likely held these views prior to his conversion to Christianity. He believed that God would intervene you know, at some point near the end of uh, time, okay. he would do that to send a deliverer, and also he would punish those who uh, were evil and set up God's kingdom here on earth. So that would be part of Paul's uh, training, etc., as a Pharisee, to believe in a future resurrection. The one aspect of his former life that Paul himself chose to emphasize in his autobiographical statements Galatians and Philippians is that 
is that it is precisely as a law-abiding, zealous Jew that he persecuted the followers of Jesus. This was part to be a, a zealous Pharisee, a zealous Jew, since it required him to persecute the followers of Jesus. He violently opposed the gospel. He set out to destroy the church. The uh, ironic thing is he regarded this opposition, this behavior, as part of his devotion to the one true God. He believed he was being a zealous Pharisee, a true uh, devotee of God, by opposing uh, the church. Now we have to ask ourselves, why was Paul so opposed to Jesus' followers? Although he never tells us, we can make some intelligent guesses. The Christian proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah would have struck most Jews as ludicrous. This idea that these Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that was a laugh. Why was that? Because they expected that their Messiah would, might be a king would establish Israel as a sovereign state. Or the Messiah would be an inspired priest who would rule God's people through his authoritative interpretation of God's law. So he might be a Messiah, Messiah might be a king who would establish the power of Israel or a priest okay, who would establish an authoritative interpretation of God's law, or possibly a, a cosmic judge who would come to destroy the forces of evil. Now, each of these three expectations involved a Messiah who would be glorious and powerful. Jesus, though, was nothing more than an itinerant preacher with a small following opposed by Jewish leaders and executed by the Romans for sedition against the state. So instead of a powerful Messiah, glorious Messiah, here is this small-time preacher with a ragtag following, and he drew opposition from the Jewish leaders, executed by the Romans for undermining the state. So for most faithful Jews to call Jesus God's Messiah was an insult to God. This is not what God, at least in their mind, was going to send them, give them as their Messiah. So for Paul, though, there was an additional problem and that related to the precise manner of Jesus's execution. So one reason he opposed Christians was that their proclamation of Jesus Messiah was a laugh. It was far from glorious or powerful. And he didn't put an end to evil. Evil seemed to have beaten him. 
The additional problem was the matter of his execution. Jesus was crucified. That is, he was killed by being attached to a stake of wood. Now, Paul is someone who knows the scriptures. And you recognize what this meant for Jesus' standing before God. As when Paul delves into his scriptures, he finds in the Torah a statement that says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 3. And Paul quotes that in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians 3.13, he quotes Deuteronomy 21.3, which says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So far from being the Christ of God, one who enjoys God's favor, Jesus was the cursed of God. He was the one who incurred God's wrath. So for Paul to call Jesus the Messiah was probably blasphemous. And this problem would have given Paul enough grounds for persecuting the Christian church. So you had two big issues. The type of Messiah the Christians proclaimed was anything but a powerful and glorious Messiah to conquer evil, establish God's kingdom. And the second thing is that even the scriptures say that Jesus is someone cursed by God because he died uh, on a tree. Now, how Paul went about persecuting the church isn't exactly known. According to the Acts of the Apostles, he received authority from the high priest in Jerusalem to capture and imprison Christians. But Paul himself says nothing about it. And the fact that the churches in Judea had never seen him before he visited them as a Christian kind of argues against it. At the same time, whatever he did to the Christians as a Jewish persecutor and whatever on whatever authority, he apparently gained some notoriety for it. He acknowledges later his reputation among the Christian churches as a sworn enemy of Christ. So the Acts tells us, you know, he got letters from the Jewish authorities to go to Jerusalem and talks about on the way there, on the road to Damascus, he you know, has this conversion experience. But uh, Paul never says that. This is what Luke reports. Now, all of this changed when the greatest persecutor of the church became its greatest proponent. Now, the turning point in Paul's life came with his encounter with the risen Jesus. Both the Acts of the Apostles and Paul himself intimate that this happened when Paul was a very young man, possibly maybe around the year 36 AD. Now the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 7 verse 58 describes Paul as a young man at the time of the slaying of Stephen. Stephen was killed, he's described as a young man. And in Philemon, verse 9, 
was written around 55 AD, he speaks of himself as an old man. So that's why they think that, you know, this conversion experience probably happened around the year 36, sometime there. Also, at the same time, Jews often had two names, one Greek, one Roman. It was Greek or Roman, rather. The other was a Semitic name. So his Greek or Roman name was Paul. His Semitic name was Saul. That was not unusual. And neither the letters of Paul nor the accident of to tell us about Paul's death. The tradition is that he was martyred under the emperor Nero. The church historian Eusebius mentions that fact. And he was martyred either around the time of Peter's death, which is around 64 AD, or somewhat later, maybe around 67 AD. Okay, so that's the background of Paul as far as being a Pharisee. You know, uh, you wonder what, what sent him off, what trip, why, why did he get this impulse to persecute the Christians? Well, as you see, the kind of Messiah they proclaimed, this is ridiculous. And also, he can't be someone approved by God or blessed by God because he was put to death on the wood of a tree. And he's cursed. That's what scriptures that he believed in said. So, you know, he wanted to put an end to this nonsense. Okay, now the second stage of Paul identifies in life is his conversion and its implications. Now, it's a little difficult to say what actually happened to make Paul turn around. That's the literal meaning of convert. Verge means to turn, con means against. So if you're heading one way and you turn against something, it's an about face. Well, the Acts of the Apostles and Paul in his letters attribute his conversion to the direct intervention of of God. This kind of supernatural act, by its very nature, is outside the scope of an historian. Now, how do you record a supernatural act? You can. An historian can talk about a person's description of God's acts. Since narratives of this kind are a matter of public record. But we have to restrict ourselves to what Paul claims to have happened at his conversion and to consider how he understood its significance. All we know is that uh, uh, it was a supernatural act, an intervention of God directly on Paul that caused his conversion. Now, Paul himself doesn't indicate that he experienced a great sense of guilt over his inability to keep God's commandments before becoming a Christian. Remember, he talks about himself as being blameless, he didn't have any sense of guilt that he couldn't keep God's commandments prior to becoming a Christian. Even though after becoming a Christian, he came to recognize that God's law was nearly impossible to keep. So 
prior to his faith in Christ, Paul considered himself to be blameless before the law. So he didn't convert because he was burdened by a law that he knew he couldn't keep. Someone was like Martin Luther, you know, uh, you know and it's just the impossibility of living you know, totally by the law of God. So Paul didn't change his religion because uh, in Judaism, uh, he found it impossible to keep the law. That wasn't the reason, because he said the law provided for a way of redeeming himself by offering sacrifice. So what did Paul, why did Paul convert? And what did his conversion mean? The Acts of the Apostles provides a detailed account of this event. I should say rather, it provides us with three accounts. Chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26. Three accounts of his conversion experience, all of which don't jive. There's different uh, information in each of them. These three accounts in the Acts of the Apostles mention details not found in Paul's account. For example, he was on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by the light. Paul doesn't say that. This is what you find in the Acts of the Apostles. These three accounts are difficult to reconcile with one another. And also, we have to remember Paul's own remembrance of this event are problematic because he's remembering the event long afterward and is reflecting on it in light of his later experiences. observe about Paul's conversion is that he traces it back to an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. In the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 8 to 11, he names himself as the last person to have seen Jesus raised from the dead. And he marks this as the beginning of his change from being a persecutor to an apostle. So 1 Corinthians 15, 8 to 11. Okay. And he talks about Christ appearing to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'm the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. The contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. It talks about this experience. The risen Christ is what turned his life around. 
It appears to be referring to the same event in Galatians chapter 1.16, where he indicates that at a predetermined point in time, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. When was God pleased to reveal his son to me? In that conversion experience. When Paul experienced this revelation from God, he became convinced there and then, according to his later perspective, that he was to preach the good news of Christ to the Gentiles. Now, we're not quite sure how long after Jesus' death this conversion event took place, or how Paul, when he saw whatever he saw, knew it to be Jesus. There's no doubt he believed that he saw Jesus' real but glorified body raised from the dead. He's not seeing the earthly Jesus prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. He's seeing the risen Christ, his real glorified body. In fact, one of the reasons that he believed that Christians would eventually experience a bodily resurrection from the dead is that he knew that Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. For him, Jesus was the first fruits of those who would be raised from the dead. So that's why he bases his belief in resurrection, the fact that it occurred to Jesus. Jesus was resurrected. Now, did this experience then lead Paul to reject his Judaism in favor of religion for the Gentiles? Was this a conversion to a completely different set of beliefs? You have a question? Sure. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah, I didn't want to a question. Not only after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but this would have occurred after the ascension because it occurred after Stephen was executed. And didn't that occur after the ascension as well? Yeah. yeah. Well, he doesn't even mention him just talking about as opposed to the earthly Jesus. The other apostles have seen the earthly Jesus only when he appeared to them, you know, afterwards. He talks about Kevis and the others, and finally, last of all, to me. Okay, so I didn't lose out. Uh, the most important thing was not knowing the earthly Jesus, but knowing the risen Jesus. Our faith is not in the earthly Jesus, but in Christ crucified and risen from the dead. So that's what Paul says, you know, I didn't know Jesus when he was alive, but that doesn't make any difference. In fact, he never mentions anything about Jesus' life in his letters. The only time is that reference to the Last Supper, which he says, it was handed down to me and I pass on to you. So, uh, so for Paul, you know, he doesn't feel that he's missed the boat, not, you know, hearing Jesus preach or work miracles. The main thing for his faith is to experience the risen Christ, you know. And that's why he's so strong in understanding a belief in a resurrection for us. People dismiss the possibility of someone's going to come back from the dead. Paul was adamant, witnessed it. Not just as a Pharisee that it was possible for the dead to rise, but he had witnessed the risen Jesus. So if Jesus was raised from the dead, we can be raised from the dead. So don't poo-poo his ideas, you know, uh, imagination or, or something else. He said, I know, because I know what I experienced. So, 
And this is why he's the first fruits. He's the first to experience this. He will bring all those who believe in him you know, to the same state. Don't be afraid to. I'm a little confused, only because he wasn't the first to experience it. Jesus rose from the dead, and his apostles saw him, and hundreds of others saw him before he ascended. Yeah, I didn't but say he was the first. Yeah. Oh, I thought Paul was saying he was the first. No. No. Okay, that's where I was. No. In fact, he says he's the last. Gotcha. You're right. You did say that. The last. Well, he lists all the other Kevis and twelve, and then a whole group of people, and last of all, almost out of time to me. But I didn't, I don't worry about the fact that they knew him before. The most important thing for our faith is to know the risen Christ. And he'll bring this up in his letters later. These are things that, that's why I'm doing these now, because you'll see when he brings them up in letters where he's coming from. Wasn't it very important that the, the apostles always stayed at the number 12? I mean, did he have the right to, he was an apostle? This is what you're going to argue later in the letter. What makes someone an apostle? We're supposed to then walk with Jesus, right? What does the word apostle mean? Cool. I call someone sent. Okay. Jesus gave the apostles when before he left, okay, commission to go out. Paul says, and he talks about my credentials as an apostle because I too was sent by the risen Christ. You're an apostle because the risen Christ sent you out. Go and preach to all nations, baptizing, etc. He came to me in this conversion experience and sent me to the Gentiles. So I'm an apostle, you know, and he, he go, will do this when he gets to Romans and he'll uh, defend that because they attack and say, you're not an apostle. Says, I, I just always remember the one thing, and I don't know where it came from, where he was actually mad that uh, Jesus picked the uneducated to follow him. Whereas he was educated, he wasn't really picked in the beginning. We have no no belief that Paul ever knew Jesus. But he was the apostles, right? Yeah. Or, or the other apostles. In fact, we'll see who mentioned. He keeps his distance from them. But he's not getting his credentials from them. They're not accepting him as an apostle. He's getting his credentials from Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that's why when I say, you know, the first thing is the forensic or judicial rhetoric, he's going to defend, like in court of law. What do you mean? You accuse me of this? Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And he lays out the case. Uh, you know, he says, I have as much authority as they do. But we'll see that how he argues that in the letters. Right? Any other questions? Okay, so. Uh, so did he experience the need to be called to reject the Judaism of his youth in favor of a religion now for the Gentiles? Was this a conversion to a completely different set of beliefs? What exactly did his vision of the resurrected Jesus mean for Paul? How would Paul have understood the new event of Jesus' resurrection in light of his old worldview of Jewish apocalypticism? Now, the confirmation of Paul's vision in light of Jesus' resurrection. Apocalypticists maintain that at the end of the age, God would intervene in history to overthrow the forces of evil. 
and he would establish his good reign on earth. So what they believe God was going to intervene, overthrow the forces of evil, establish his good reign on earth. And at that time, the dead would be raised to face judgment. So you have to ask yourself now, what would an apocalyptic Jew conclude if he or she came to believe that God has now raised someone? What would that mean for, quote, an apocalyptic Jew? He came to believe that God had raised someone already. End of time. Yeah, clearly for such a person, the end had already begun. The dead were raised. That's was part of the end time. God would send somebody back to judge and to raise the dead. Okay. And if this has happened in the case of Jesus, the end of time has, has begun, started, initiated. Now, Paul drew this exact conclusion. He believed that he was living at the end of time. He also believed that he'd be alive when Jesus returned from heaven. That's how close he thought you know, the end of time would be fulfilled. And that's why he speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. And by talking about Jesus in those terms, he is making use of an agricultural image to refer to the celebration that comes at the conclusion of the first day of the harvest. following day, the workers would go to the fields and continue their labor to celebrate the first day of the harvest. So Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection in the sense that all others would also soon be gathered in, that they too would be resurrected. So as an apocalyptic Jew, Paul already believed that at the end of the age, God would intervene to reward the faithful, punish the sinner, and overthrow the forces of evil that plague this world. In other words, well, the forces of evil, the demonic rulers, wicked powers of sin and death. Jesus' resurrection must have confirmed these views. One of the reasons that there will be a resurrection at the end of time is that death is God's enemy. And when it is destroyed, there'll be no more dying, no more death. Those who have died will therefore return to life. So as far as Paul was concerned, Jesus had already returned to life, which meant that God had begun to defeat the power of death in him, and that the cosmic destruction of the forces of evil had already begun. We can see how Paul's uh, thinking as an apocalyptic Jew, now all of a sudden, you know, it's easily transferred 
over to his newfound belief in the risen Christ. Uh, what they expected, yes, God would send somebody you know, to overturn the sin and evil, destroy the forces of uh, death and evil. In the resurrection of Jesus, he sees us. Okay. Any questions? We're just about at the end of time. Uh, now, what I want you to do is make sure that you read, is it First Thessalonians? Yeah, first and second Thessalonians for next class. Okay, we'll finish the uh, material in the background of Paul. We went to first Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. That's familiar to you because uh, in Thessalonians you have readings from the uh, funeral liturgy. Uh, Thessalonians is one of the favorite, uh, old, not ultimate, Pauline readings that's used for. Uh, funeral liturgies. So, and again, just think about the background material that I mentioned in class as you read Thessalonians. Okay. This idea of apocalyptic Jew at the end of time, you know, and he expected that he would still be alive when Jesus returned. Any, any questions before we break? All right, if you have any questions or anything, email me. Okay. All right. Uh, John, I will email you. You mentioned something you needed to talk about, so I'll email you maybe tomorrow, okay? Okay. All right? Very good. Okay? All right, so you got your first dose of Paul. <laughs> Again, hopefully it explains why he behaved the way he did, why Christians were such a bug in his mind, you know, why did he go after them? And it's all because of his zealousness as a Pharisee. Who he believed. He thought it was putting an end to some nonsense. This couldn't happen. Powerful Messiah died. And then the way he died, the scriptures say this guy is cursed. How are you going about celebrating him as your Messiah? That can't be. So he thought he was doing the world a favor. Like the stony of Stephen, would that be just sort of like a um, an anger gone wrong? Because obviously they weren't allowed to kill him, but they did. No, he he he, he didn't partake in the killing. He witnessed it. He witnessed it. Well, he held the cloaks, didn't he, or something yeah. like that. Well, I mean, in, in today's court, I mean, he'd be an accessory to the crime. But uh, in, in that sense, that again, uh, this was putting an end. Stephen was advocating. You know what all the Christians were doing. So Paul, when he set out, you know, to persecute the Christians, he didn't have any one particular one in mind. Anybody was, you know, advancing this idea. You know, how do we put put down? Because you know, this is an offense to Judaism. But it was also offense to the law, right? Yeah. To, to kill somebody. Well, it's offense to the law to kill somebody. But again, you know, he was carrying out the law in the sense that. This was blasphemous to proclaim Messiah as uh, somebody who was weak and uh, the forces of evil put him to death. This, this is contradicting. It'd be just like uh, you know, saying that, uh, going around saying Mary was a prostitute, his mother, and stuff. And he'd say, you know, put this out. You'd have petitions and all this stuff. You know how sometimes we, in art shows, 
the pictures of Christ are kind of uh, mean, etc. Some people want things shut down. Why? Because it's offensive to our faith. It's an insult to us to allow this to be depicted and to be propagated among the public. It's the same way with Paul. It's offensive to me as a Jew. Move around and stick this. To try not only to state what you believe, but to try to get others to join you in that. So, you know, this this got to be stopped. You know, otherwise it's going to get out of hand. So, but he thought he was a devout Jew in that sense. He was upholding uh, their beliefs. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So, read Brown and Thessalonians. Okay. Thanks, Doug. Father, it's Chris. Um, I'll send you an email, but next week I am I need to go visit my company and it's overseas, so I don't think I want to dial in at one a.m. If I ask Cynthia, can we have the class recorded so I can capture it, or I can ask one of my friends to take notes, I guess. But I'll send you a note with it all. I just okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll ask. Uh, 